0: Well, you know that video means it's time to get back into 1 Timothy, and I'm excited to do that again with you this week. Excited just to be back. If you're new, my name is Adam, and I'm one of the pastors at First Free Church. I've been gone for the last couple of weeks, but really glad to be back with you and teaching today. Uh, If you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy. You're going to want to be there all morning as we study God's Word together, and it's really just a joy for me to be able to be back here and, and do this. For the last couple of weeks, I've been gone. Two weeks ago, I was with our elders. Most of our elders, anyway, at, well, we called it an elder retreat, uh, but it was really more of an elder trip. Uh, it was a chance for us to have long, extended hours and hours and hours of elder meetings, basically, and talk about what's going on in the church, what's going on in our nation, what are the trends, how are we responding to them, how are we preparing for the future at First Free. So it was a really a great, great time of, uh, of just talking about those things. Here's a photo so you can kind of get a sense of. What that looked like for us. We had a great time talking there, and we left still good friends. So that's always a very good thing. And then last Sunday, I was uh, in Israel. And Andrew filled in for me. And it was awesome. Our tech team does such a good job here with the with the um, ministry online. I was able to watch live both times at the elder retreat. And then the trip in Israel, I was able to watch the services live. And that was just awesome. And Kevin and Andrew did such a great job preaching. Really, really wonderful. Uh, and in Israel, I was working on my message for today because we just got back Thursday night. So I'm still dealing with jet lag and all that good stuff. If for some reason, I just wind up taking a nap in the middle of this message, You know, you'll have to forgive me because all I want to do right now is just sleep. Um, But gradually I will get over this jet lag. So while I was in Israel working on this message, I started to see some parallels, and I thought, you know, I'll give you a little review of the Israel trip. Going to the Holy Land is such a special experience because it makes the Bible come alive, and many people have said it's like before you go, you read the Bible in black and white, and after you go, you read the Bible in color, and that really is what it feels like because it just expands your, your horizon to understand so much more of what the Bible has to offer when you can see that these are real places, that real people were there. Jesus really walked through these streets and on these stones, and I'm touching stones that Jesus touched or, or stones near here, and I'm in the same place where he did miracles and, and where he died and was buried and he rose again, and it's just, it's such an incredible thing. So I want to share that with you, but then there's also a message tie-in as well that I think makes a lot of sense. So let me just give you kind of a brief review of sort of what we did there. This is what we found at our first hotel. There may be some truth to that. I don't know. Then we went to Caesarea Maritima, a city that Herod the Great built, incredible Roman modern city, really, really amazing. I wish I could tell you more about it, but we don't have time. Then we ended up at the Sea of Galilee a couple of years ago we took a trip from this church as well and that was a really really big trip two bus loads and so we filled the whole boat this was a much smaller trip but a much more intimate experience that way and we had a great time we just filled the front of the boat but really wonderful time on the sea of Galilee where Jesus walked on water and and uh, calmed the storm on the sea this is the Jordan River where several people were baptized on our trip, that was really neat. This is Capernaum. This was Jesus' home base of ministry. It's where Peter's home was. In fact, if you look underneath that building, you see that's where Peter's home actually was. They we're right across from a synagogue, uh, the ruins of which you can see there as well. And then there's just a sprawling network of ruins of the walls where the houses were and the streets were that Jesus walked. And this is the place where he did a good chunk of his mi- miracles here and around there. That building, the uh, the church will tell you, is supposed to look like a sailboat. I think. It looks like a UFO, but anyway, it's over where Peter's house is that protected. And so you can look at it. This is from the Mount of Beatitudes where Jesus gave his most famous sermon. And so we got to see that while we were there. This is the Fortress um, Masada on top of a mountain, really epic place. Our guide, when we got up there, he said, I think this is a record. I've been doing this over 20 years, and I've never been the only group at Masada. We were the only group at Masada. It was really unbelievable to go at this time when nobody was going because of all the hoops you had to jump through. This is the Mount of Olives. These are olive trees. Some of them may actually be a couple thousand years old. There are some very, very old trees there. And uh, this is where you get your coffee. It's a little different. I actually spotted three different variations of the books while we were in Israel. Different plays on the name. I'm sure it's all licensed and legit. This is the Western Wall at the Temple Mount, so we got to go here and go on to the Temple Mount, go inside the, the uh, rooms next to the Western Wall. This is also called the Wailing Wall, where Jewish people will go to, to pray to God. It's the, it's the place that they can get to that is the closest to where the Temple would have been. And then on top of the Temple Mount now, of course, is the Dome of the Rock, a Muslim building, and we were able to go right up to that, and again, there, was, there were very few people around, so a great opportunity for photos and just to explore. and and get to see everything up there. And then uh, what would your trip to Israel be without some king of the juice? Everything is an opportunity to sell something. We explored some old tunnels. This is actually a Canaanite tunnel from pre-David Jerusalem. The Jebusites built this, and David conquered the Jebusites to take over Jerusalem. So, this is a 3,000 year old tunnel that they built to bring water from the Gihon Spring into the city. And we got to walk through that. We got to explore uh, different tunnels. This is one that the Jewish people used to escape the Romans in 70 AD when the Romans invaded and conquered and destroyed the temple. It's very hard to get through this tunnel, as we learned. I had been through it once before, and they actually had brought the floor up a ways during most of this, so it made it even smaller. And it was quite a challenge to get through this, but we made it through. And explore the old streets of Jerusalem and all the shops. And of course, being one of the few groups there, we were prime targets for all the vendors who really wanted to sell us something very, very badly. And then we got to explore all the old walls of the city. This is the Damascus Gate. We got to walk around the walls. You can see from up on top of the walls, you can walk around all the walls of the old city and get great views of the surrounding area, the Mount of Olives, uh, Mount Zion, all kinds of things while you are there. Really an incredible experience, but I would say one of the things that I took away from this trip in particular, I was aware of before, but it just hit me as I was preparing for my message today, was how divided many of the churches in Israel are against each other, and how much infighting there is. When you go to these different churches, you really learn just how much fighting there is between these different churches. And some of the church buildings are owned different sections by different churches. So there's this chunk that's owned by the Roman Catholic Church, and this chunk that's by the Greek Orthodox Church, and this one is by the Armenian Apostolic Church, and there's the Ethiopian and the Coptic and all these different churches that own sections of these physical church buildings that are considered sacred in some way because they are at a spot where something amazing happened back in the days of Jesus and the apostles. And so these churches, they just don't always get along. Uh, One time we went to the Church of the Nativity, and if you've ever been to the Church of the Nativity, you know what an unbelievable photo this is. This is all our group. And so normally there'd be hundreds of people snaking their way through this auditorium to get to the place where Jesus was born. But in this case, it was just our group. And we got to casually stroll through and walk down and spend some time and sing some songs in the in the cave area where Jesus was born and, and then come back up. And as we were coming up out of the cave where Jesus was born, we got flagged down, my guide and, and me, to help out with a chandelier that was being installed on the stage. This chandelier is made from silver. It was donated by Tsar Nicholas II of Russia some hundred plus years ago. And they were putting this chandelier up as part of the decorating renovations. And they quickly needed people to come over and help hold this thing up so they could install it. So that's me that you can see on the left and one of our guides on the right holding this up. And then it took a lot longer than we expected. So several more members of our team came over and helped hold this thing in place while they installed it. And afterward, as we were, um, as we were, oh, we don't need to go there yet, as we were walking away, thinking, well, that was a really cool experience, we happened to spot these other people there who worked at the church, big, strong people. One of the guys had a biceps bigger than my head, and that's not a joke. He really did have just massive arms. And we're like, why weren't they helping? Why did they not lift a finger? to help install this chandelier in their own church, the place where they're clearly working. And our guide talked to them, and we found out the answer, which was they were part of the Armenian church. The people we were helping were in the Greek Orthodox church. And the Greek Orthodox church owned the stage area, and the Armenian church owned the side of the stage area where our group was standing. And so the Greek Orthodox people knew that they could get us to help, but they couldn't get the Armenian church people to help. In fact, if the, even if the Armenian church wanted to help, doing so would actually cause a bit of a diplomatic crisis between the two churches that could go on for a year or more. Now, how ridiculous does that sound? But that's the kind of fighting that happens between these churches. I'll give you another example. This is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. This is the place where Jesus died and was buried and, and rose again. And it's a, it's a big, sprawling church. It used to be just a little thing, but it's built on over the years. And there are six different churches that lay claim to portions of this church. And so, you know, some of them have a big area. Some of them have just a little room. Different elements of this are owned by different churches. And because of all the infighting between these churches, in 1192, the year 1192, the Sultan Saladin, who you may have heard of, He established that the keys to the entrance of this church would be controlled, not by any of the Christian churches that had some piece of ownership, but by a Muslim family that had no vested interest in the church to keep the churches from fighting and keeping each other out. They couldn't trust any one church with the keys to this place because they might lock other churches out and and try to take over the whole thing for themselves. So since 1192, the keys to this church have been held by the same Muslim family and passed down from generation to generation. And every morning, a representative of that family will show up and open the doors and let the churches in. And at night, they all leave and they will close the doors. And that has been it has been done that way since 1192, which has kept the churches from fighting as much as maybe they would otherwise. Now, it hasn't totally kept them from fighting, actually. Maybe... Maybe less in some ways, but these churches, sometimes they really do not get along. In 2002, there was a Coptic monk who had a chair at an agreed-upon place. It was supposed to stay in this place, but it was in the hot summer sun, and he wanted to move it a few feet that way in the shade. So he did, and it started an uproar. The Ethiopian church took this as a hostile takeover. It led to a brawl, and 11 people ended up in the hospital. Because he moved his chair into the shade. Two years later, there was a, the Orthodox Church was having a ceremony. And as part of that, they had to go through a room that was owned by the Franciscans. And they left the door open. That led to a fist fight and several people were arrested. Now, can you imagine if portions of this church building were divided up by different churches and owned by different groups? And every time we got upset with each other, we got into a fight. I mean, that just seems absolutely ridiculous to us, but that is how these churches sometimes operate. And if you were to ask the leaders of these churches, every one of them would tell you that they love Jesus, and they they value the Bible, and and they know the Bible in some cases very, very well, and they would affirm the importance of love and grace and humility, but their actions don't always show it. And this is nothing new. This has been the case for Christians in God's church since the foundation of the church and and even before that, because we are humans and we are fallen, we bring our broken humanness into whatever organization we become a part of, and that includes the church. And so the church is not immune to division or problems and leadership issues in the church, and we see that in the Holy Land, and we see that in Paul's letter to Timothy. In fact, what Timothy is going to describe in this letter, I think, is meant to help Uh, keep from happening some of the things that we experience with those churches in the Holy Land. Paul says in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, I am writing these things to you now, even though I hope to be with you soon, so that if I am delayed, you will know how people must conduct themselves in the household of God. It was important to Paul that we in God's church behave in certain ways and appropriately and with order and with respect And so he wrote this whole letter so that Timothy could teach his church how to do that well. And much of this has to do with leadership, because as the leadership goes, often so goes the church. And so it's incredibly important to make sure that the church has good leaders, not just at the senior pastor level, but at every level of the church. And with all the elders and all of the pastors and all the ministry leaders and everyone that is teaching, leadership in the church is such an important, critical aspect of making sure that the church is doing what God has called it to do. And so in chapter 2, Paul gives instruction for conduct in the church. And in chapter 3, he gives qualification for church leaders. In chapter 4, he gives advice on dealing with bad leaders. And in chapter 5, we're going to see today, he's going to give some advice on how to treat church leaders. So I want to read the passage with you today in 1 Timothy chapter 5, starting in verse 17. And I'm going to put this on the screen just for this time. But as I go through the rest of the message, I'm going to reference back to it many times. I'm not going to show these on the screen again. So keep your Bible open so that you can follow along. Anytime I jump to a different part of scripture, we'll put that up on the screen for you. Uh, but just leave First Timothy 5 open so that you can be studying this with us as we walk through it today. Verse 17, Paul says, elders who do their work well should be respected and paid well, especially those who work hard at both preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. And in another place, those who work deserve their pay. Do not listen to an accusation against an elder unless it is confirmed by two or three witnesses. Those who sin should be reprimanded in front of the whole church. This will serve as a strong warning to others. I solemnly command you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus and the highest angels to obey these instructions without taking sides or showing favoritism to anyone. Never be in a hurry about appointing a church leader. Do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Before we go any further, let's just pause and ask God to bless our time in his word. Father, thank you for this letter that has been preserved for us so that we can see how you want us to operate in the church and and I know that some of the things we talk about today uh, will seem like they pertain mostly to just leaders in the church and not to everyone, but, but really they do pertain to all of us. All of us need to be aware of your instructions for how your church is supposed to be led. So God, I pray that you would give us wisdom as we read this. Help us to understand what it means. Help us to understand how it applies to our individual lives, maybe in ways that, that we don't understand yet, but that you will reveal to us as we keep going. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, what we're going to talk about today is honestly going to seem like some inside baseball for church. It's going to be a lot of leadership principles, and it's going to be some behind-the-scenes leadership principles, and it may feel like, well, why are we, why are we going into this right now? And there's a couple of reasons. I mean, the, the first and biggest one is we're working through this letter to Timothy, and this is what Paul talks about next, and we're not going to skip it. We're going to go through it together. And so there may be some good takeaways for you. There, it may not be quite as good as takeaways other weeks, but I think also this is just important for everyone in the church to understand what are God's expectations for how to treat church leaders in a variety of different ways. And this is going to help us understand that. I also want to acknowledge that most of my main points today are um, stolen from another pastor, but with permission. So I guess I should say borrowed, right? Um, as, as I was working on this, I, I came across an outline from a pastor who's a friend of mine, and I asked him, hey, can I just use your points because they're so good? I, I've got a little bit to add to them, but everything else is mine. But the main points are taken from Larry Osborne, who's one of my favorite preachers, and he said that was totally fine to do. So I think I'm in the clear there. Here's what he said first about this passage, and then we'll unpack it a little bit. Talking about verse 17 and church leaders in particular, he says, when they do well, pay them well. When they do well, pay them well. Paul says elders who do their work well should be respected and paid well, especially those who work hard at both preaching and teaching. Every couple of years, someone will catch me in the hallway or will send me a message or a letter or something like that. And this has gone on since before I was at First Free. And will say something to the effect of, you know, I don't think you pastors should get paid. I don't think, I think all pastoral ministry should just be volunteer. Like the fact that you're getting any money from this at all means that you're not doing it for the right reason, and so I just don't think pastors should be paid. And I understand that that maybe sounds like a, a good idea, um, especially if you don't understand uh, what it takes to be involved in pastoral ministry very much. And certainly there are by vocational pastors, typically that have small churches where the church can't afford to pay them a full salary, and so they have to get a part-time job and they get a little money from the church, and you put that together and it makes it work. And all of that is good and fine, but we want to know, what does the Bible say about pastoral ministry or church leaders and whether or not it's even appropriate for them to receive any compensation for what they do? And I realize that this may come across as self-serving by being a pastor who is teaching on this, but it's what's in the text, so it's what we're going to talk about. In the Old Testament, the priests and the Levites were provided for by the people of Israel So that they could focus their entire time on serving God and serving people on behalf of God. And that's what they did. They represented God to the people. They represented the people to God. And they were provided for so that they didn't have to go do other work. Uh, They got what they needed from the people. This carried forward into the New Testament church in a very direct way. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, Don't you realize that those who work in the temple get their meals and offerings brought to the temple? from the offerings brought to the temple. And those who serve at the altar get a share of the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord ordered that those who preach the good news should be supported by those who benefit from it. What Paul is saying here is that it is absolutely not wrong for those who are in the ministry of the gospel, those who are leading in the church, to receive compensation for what they're doing in that work. In fact, it's something that Jesus himself commanded be done. And we don't have any text in scripture where Jesus says this. So this must be one of the things that Paul talked about in Galatians when he said, I am passing on to you not what I got from any human, but what I got from the Lord Jesus himself. We know that Paul was taught directly by Jesus when he was off in the wilderness before he met with the other apostles. And Paul wanted to make a point of that. And so one of the things that at some point Jesus told him was, in my church, I want to make sure that the leaders of that church are compensated for, paid for by the people who are benefiting from that ministry. And so Paul tells Timothy here in this letter that we're studying that elders who rule well is the literal translation. Those who rule well should be paid well. Literally, it actually says those who rule well should receive double pay, especially those who preach and teach. We learned a couple different things from this passage. One is that church leaders can, in fact, be paid and should be paid. Um, and that doesn't mean that they always have to be. There are many people who serve in significant ways in the church who say, I just want to do this as a volunteer. In fact, there are some times where we will try to pay people as a church because they're doing work that we think that merits pay. And they will say, this is an act of ministry and service to God. I don't need it. And that's great. That's wonderful. Um, but it is appropriate and certainly biblical for churches to pay those who are working in the ministry. There's nothing wrong with that at all. This also teaches us, though, that elders, even in the New Testament times, had some different roles. And so he says, especially those who preach and teach. That means not all elders are preaching and teaching on a regular basis. So here's how this works out in um At first free, we have a board of elders that includes lay elders and a vocational elder. The lay elders are volunteers who are not paid, but they're on the elder board and they're elders in the church. And there's one paid elder who is the senior pastor who does the bulk of the preaching and teaching and daily leadership of the staff of the church. And that's kind of how that plays out for us. Uh, Certainly the elders all need to be able to teach first Timothy three teaches that but not all of them have to be doing the work of preaching and teaching in the in the church on a regular basis necessarily they need to be able to now when it comes to pay and compensation how do we handle things like that well this is where again it gets into some inside baseball but you might be curious to know how do we do this at the church well. The way we practice this is we have an outside third-party group that collects data from all churches across the country, not all churches, but many churches across the country, and pulls that data together so that we can see what is an appropriate pay scale for people doing this job at a church our size. And then our HR committee and our HR staff are able to look at that and say, okay, what is is a a range of pay here that would not be below average, would actually be above average, so we make sure that we're compensating people fairly and well for the work that they do. And that's how we handle that here at First Free. So when it comes to church leadership, Paul says, if they're doing well, you should pay them well. It's okay to compensate them. Next thing we read about church leaders is that when they're criticized— we should give them the benefit of the doubt. When they're criticized, give them the benefit of the doubt. Paul says, do not listen to an accusation against an elder unless it is confirmed by two or three witnesses. We talked a few weeks ago about what to do if you feel like you're wronged by someone, right? Uh, Proverbs nineteen eleven says, it's to a wise person's glory to overlook an offense. If you can overlook it, great. And if you can't overlook it, or if it's bigger than that, Matthew 18 teaches that we should go to the person alone and talk about this with them privately. And if that doesn't resolve it, we should take a witness. And if that doesn't resolve it, we should go to church leadership. And so there is a process to be followed there. What Paul adds here in verse 19 is kind of an extra layer on that for the purpose of church leaders. He says, Don't even listen to an accusation against an elder unless it is confirmed by two or three witnesses. Now, the, the reason this is so important is because truth matters to God, and evidence matters to God, not just speculation, not just perception, but what really happened. It's not just one person saying, well, I heard this, or I saw this, or I think I saw this, but it's multiple people saying, no, this is what happened, and this was really wrong. This was a problem, and we need to deal with it. There's a high level of um, that Paul establishes a high bar for when there's an accusation against an elder. The Jewish law said that there needed to be two or three witnesses to establish the truth. Jesus affirmed this in Matthew chapter 18, and Paul affirms it here. So, why would he make a point of this when it comes to church leaders? Why would Paul say, hey, make sure that if, if someone has an accusation against a church leader, that you don't just listen to that unless there are multiple people coming forward who can say, yes, this is verified? I think he did it because he knows full well, and he experienced this himself, that accusations are so easy to make. It is very easy for someone to throw a stone at another person without even thinking twice about it. And and, and maybe it's because they don't like that person. Maybe it's because they're bitter about something. Maybe it's because they disagree about something. It may not be because there is actually a problem or a sin issue. It may be because of a number of different things. It could be a satanic attack that is going on. And that person is being influenced to, to do this, to distract that leader. But there's a bullseye on the back of every church leader, a bullseye that invites accusations and attacks and distractions to keep them from doing the things that God has called them to do. And it can be incredibly discouraging and demoralizing and distracting for a church leader when they're constantly having to fight off all sorts of false accusations or accusations that are really just for misunderstandings. And so that's why I think Paul says there is a high bar here for what you're to pay attention to. And because there are so many accusations that are going to get thrown out left and right, you cannot just immediately assume every single one of them is credible. You have to make sure that it's verified and validated by multiple people before you're going to actually take that seriously. This has become so much more obvious, I think, since the invention of the internet. And really, since the invention of social media, think about the things that people will say online about other people that they would never say to them in person. It is so easy for us to go online, whether anonymous or even not anonymous, and say and just spew some hateful things or false accusations, make claims that have no basis in the truth or incredible exaggerations of what is true. And yet we would never say those things to their face in person. And I think that's the issue that Paul is addressing here is it's so easy. Obviously, he didn't have social media in his day, but people haven't changed that much. It's so easy for us to throw out accusations. And if every one of those accusations gets treated as if, oh, that's definitely truth that we need to dig into and pursue, well, then that's all you'll ever do because that happens on a weekly basis. Accusations are made on a weekly basis for many church leaders. Satan loves those kinds of spiritual attacks. Because it gets church leaders off course, and it gets churches off course. And so Paul was a pretty smart guy, and he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so he tells Timothy here to teach the church not to listen to accusations without multiple credible eyewitnesses. And a witness means that they saw it themselves, or they heard it themselves, not that they heard it from someone, now they're passing it on. They are a witness to this. Paul knows that if church leaders are constantly having to defend themselves against false accusations and conspiracy theories, then they're not going to be able to spend their time on preaching the word and studying and praying and, and leading the church and train up the next generation of leaders. So he sets that high bar for accusations, knowing the false accusations that can get thrown out there. In fact, in multiple of Paul's letters, you see him giving defenses for himself because someone has made an accusation against him in some church that is not credible. Now there is another side of this coin which is to say that just because there is a high bar before we say yes this is a credible accusation of sin that we're going to look into we also have to be very careful not to make the mistake of thinking our spiritual leaders they're practically perfect in every way they could never they could never sin they could never be guilty of, of doing things that would be disqualifying for them for leadership And so sometimes in organizations, you'll find that, especially if a leader has been there a long time, people, when they do get credible accusations from multiple people, they will say, they will look the other way. And probably all of you can think of some high profile cases where spiritual leaders that you know, or pastors that you know of, some of them are household names, have been living in sin for sometimes decades. And the warning signs were there and witnesses brought it up and people ignored it and didn't do anything about it. And that is is tragic, and that is horrible. And so just because there is this high bar where Paul says, don't just listen to every accusation that rolls in, make sure it's credible and, and verified by multiple people. At the same time, when that does happen, and there are credible witnesses and there is an issue, you cannot sweep that under the rug. And so Paul says in verse 20, those who sin should be reprimanded in front of the whole church. This will serve as a strong warning to others. Osborne says it this way. He says, when they mess up, don't cover up. When they mess up, don't cover up. Because of the frequency of false accusations against church leaders, there does have to be an expectation that accusations are credible and verified by multiple witnesses and not just the result of bitter people who didn't get their way or some satanic attack. But when there is credible Uh, When there is a credible verified sin problem, you cannot just dismiss it or sweep it under the rug. Those who sin is the phrase that Paul uses. That means that he assumes that you've gone through the process he mentioned before. So there are multiple credible eyewitnesses here. And then he says, those who sin. Now, literally that word sin is in the present tense, which in the Greek means that it's a continuing action. It's not just present in the sense of he is sinning right now. It's present in the sense of he is sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning. In fact, some versions will translate this, those who persist in sin, they continue on sinning. The idea is that multiple credible witnesses have come forward. An investigation has taken place to see that, yes, this really is a problem. There is a sinful pattern of behavior here that we can verify. And we have confronted, according to Matthew 18... And Galatians 6.1, which says that you who are spiritual when your brother is caught in sin, should pull him aside and gently and humbly point him onto the right path. And so we've done all of that. We followed that process biblically. And after that, they're still continuing to sin. They're persisting in their sin. And when that happens, Paul says, that triggers a rebuke in front of the whole church. Paul is not saying here that church leaders have to be perfect and praise God for that because if church leaders had to be perfect then I am completely unqualified for sure but so is every other church leader who's ever existed and so is the apostle Paul who talked about his own struggle with sin that's not what he's saying he's saying that if they sin after they've been confronted and they persist in that same sin they don't show remorse or repentance they haven't turned away from their sin then there's a public rebuke and probably removal from their position as well. Now, one other thing worth noting here, we are talking about sin issues. We are talking about violations of God's word. We're not talking about differences of opinion. And one thing that I've noticed and mentors have pointed out to me over the years is that in the church world and among Christians, we often describe differences of opinion in sin language. It's really easy for us to take differences of opinion and assume motives and assume a heart condition behind something that we disagree with. This happens all the time in churches. And so there's a decision we disagree with, and we, we jump to a conclusion about what sinful thing might be behind that decision because we didn't like the decision. But maybe it's just a difference of opinion. Or we wanted to meet with someone. They didn't meet with us when we wanted to, and so we describe them as unloving. We attach a sin condition To the fact that there was a scheduling conflict. Or in some cases, we want to know more information than we were told. We didn't get all the dirt that we wanted. And so we say that they were being dishonest. When really, maybe the information that we wanted to get wasn't appropriate to share. And and would have actually been sinful to share that information with us. But see what I mean? We attach sometimes sin language to what are just differences of view or opinion or perspective. And we need to be careful about that. About assuming the motives and heart of other people. Paul is not talking here about preferences. He's talking about sin issues. And in God's church, there are certain people who God has established as the spiritual leaders of that church, elders and pastors and ministry leaders in different roles. And there are times where we will observe something and go, oh, that, that seems like sinful behavior. And we need to be willing to confront that. There will be other times where we observe something and we go, I would do that differently. Well, that's a difference of opinion. And we need to be careful not to conflate those two. When there is credible evidence of actual sinful behavior, then we absolutely must confront and not cover it up. In fact, we need to be willing to do that, even when the person who is sinning is a good friend. In fact, that's when it's the hardest, isn't it? Not just for church leaders, but for all of us. I think this is one of the the biggest issues the church faces today. I really do. is a lack of accountability between its members. If we were really living life together and doing church together in the way the Bible talks about, where we're involved in each other's lives and we're seeing what's going on, then we're, we should be able to spot when a brother or sister in Christ is slipping into some pattern of sinful behavior, whether it's of the, the mind or the words or actions or whatever it is. And then it's our expectation and obligation for us to approach that person, as Galatians 6:1 says, and gently and humbly try to correct them onto the right path. But we don't often do that, especially when the person is close to us. And so Paul says here in verse 21 of 1 Timothy 5, look at your Bibles. I solemnly command you. This is a big to Paul. I solemnly command you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus and the highest angels. Think about how much preface is going into this here. I command you solemnly in the presence of God and Christ Jesus and the highest angels. There is nothing else to appeal to. Paul has just thrown the book at him and said, And in all of this, obey these instructions without taking sides or showing favoritism to anyone. Without taking sides or showing favoritism. Here's the point we'll make. When a friend is wrong, don't give them a pass. When a friend is wrong, don't give them a pass. And this is true of church leaders, but it's true for everyone. If we see someone who's engaged in sin, living in sin, maybe it's a a constant bad attitude when the Bible says we should always rejoice Maybe it's unfaithfulness to a spouse, or it looks like it's leading in that direction. Maybe it's greed, or idolatry, or lying, or spreading rumors, or stealing, or cheating, or harsh words. And because we're close friends, we don't want to say anything. But that's not really love. Proverbs 27:6 says, Wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. See, an enemy will just tell you what you want to hear. They have no interest in making sure that your life is going to be better, that you're not headed toward a path of destruction. But a friend sees that, that problem in your life and says, because I really care about you, I want to bring this up. Because I love you, I want to make sure that you know about this. John Richardson has a phrase. I don't know if it originates with him, but he's the one that shared it with me, and I love it so much. It's so true for Christians. It goes like this. Niceness... Is often the enemy of truth and love. Take a minute to absorb that. Niceness is often the enemy of truth and love. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do for a person is to say, I don't think it's appropriate for you to be talking about that. Or to approach them and say, look, I could be wrong here. That's the humility part. I could be wrong here, but what I'm seeing just makes me wonder if there might be a a problem Here, and I just want to bring it up to you. Maybe I'm misunderstanding something, um, but I'm here to help you, and and I care about you, and I love you. And so I want to bring this up. We are not good at confronting each other in the body of Christ. We have to do it with gentleness and with humility, but it is important that the church be able to keep uh, each other accountable. What if some of those high-profile leaders that I mentioned earlier had had people close to them, good friends who spotted the problems and went to them and said, hey, I see a problem here. What if they had had people helping to keep them accountable? And maybe they did, and maybe they rejected it. I do not know. But that's what the Bible tells us we are supposed to do. It's not easy to confront sin. But even when they're a friend, we shouldn't give them a pass. We need to be willing to do it. The last point that we'll cover today is really just a call back to chapter 3. Chapter 3, you'll remember, is the chapter where Paul gives all these qualifications for church leaders. And that means it requires some investigation. You have to take some time to see, do these church leaders meet the qualifications that are laid out in God's Word? It it takes a little time to do that. So it's no surprise that here, Paul tells Timothy in verse 22, never be in a hurry about appointing a church leader. He says, do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. We're going to put it this way. When you choose one, take your time. When you choose a church leader, take your time. There's no need to rush it. I remember at a previous church, I was teaching a class every Sunday, and it was a, a good-sized class, um, so it was kind of hard to know sometimes who was coming and going. And one time, this guy came up to me who evidently was new. It was his first Sunday. And he, as we got to talking, I, I was encouraged and, and excited. He seemed to know a lot about the Bible, and that was exciting. And, and he said, you know, I, I like your church. I like your teaching. I like what you're doing here. Uh, I'd really love to start my own class here. I'm like, oh, that sounds great. You know, he's like, well, can I start it next week? And I said, you know what? Let me throw out another suggestion. What if you were to just come to our church for a while, get involved in some kind of serving ministry here, not necessarily leading or teaching just yet, build some trust, get to know people, spend a little time making sure that you're integrated with our church community here. And then in about a year, we'll, we'll talk again about maybe being a, a leader of your own class. And you're never going to believe it. But I did not see that man again. Because he wanted to be elevated very quickly into a position of influence and leadership. And we as a church have to be careful to make sure that we're not doing that. And some churches get so desperate to fill a certain position or a certain role that they will be very quick to jump on someone who looks like they might be able to meet it. This is even a bigger problem for smaller churches. Smaller churches that, that feel like, boy, we just don't have the people we need to do certain things. And someone comes along and we start to think, wow, they've really got the gifting that we need. And without giving the time to evaluate their character, it's very easy to just quickly put them in a position of leadership and authority. And then we find out when it's too late that they didn't actually have the character to go along with whatever their giftedness was. We need to be willing to take our time when appointing church leaders. That's why it's so important for the pastors, the elders, the nominating committee, however church does it, to vet potential leaders and make sure that they are who they say they are. Now, we'll never be perfect at picking leaders. The reality is some people are very good at hiding things and also some people are in a great place when they get appointed to a position and then while they're in that position sometimes they can go down the wrong path and so uh, that can happen as well. But if we rush to elevate people into positions of leadership without giving them time to grow and opportunities to test their abilities and to learn and for us to observe their character then we almost guarantee that we will be appointing some people who are not ready. Now I recognize that this message is a little bit different. And it's it's not the normal message you would expect from a church. But I think it is important for all of us to understand these principles in the church. And I also want to leave you with something that you can take away that maybe is very relevant to you. So what I'm going to do is I took each of these five principles and I turned them into questions that you can ask for yourself. Questions that maybe you can take away from here. And even if it's just one of these questions that sort of hits you and God speaks to your heart through this, then that will be something good to get out of today's message. The first point was when they do well, pay them well. And the question for us to ask ourselves is, am I generous or stingy toward God's church? The Bible says that the church needs to be engaged in helping the poor, the orphans and the widows. That means financial resources. The Bible says that the church should pay its leaders and even pay them well. The Bible says that, that people in the church should be giving to support the ministry of God's church. And so the question for us is, are we as a church, myself included, are we contributing to God's church so that the church can do those things? Are we being generous with the church or are we being stingy with what is really God's money? The next question I want to ask is having to do with the criticism and giving the benefit of the doubt. Do I choose to believe the best about others or listen to gossip? You know, this is true for everybody. It is so easy for us, and I think, I, don't, I haven't looked up the science on this, but I would guess that when you hear a bit of juicy information about someone else, there's a bit of an endorphin rush. Maybe somebody can verify that for me. And I would guess that when you go share that with someone else, there's probably another endorphin rush. And I think that maybe spreading rumors about people and gossip can be kind of an addictive thing. I think it can feel good to us. And yet we are supposed to give other people the benefit of the doubt. We're supposed to treat others as better than ourselves. That means we do not assume that every bit of gossip or rumor we hear about someone is true. And we're not going to listen to that. Number three, when they mess up, don't cover up. Am I willing to lovingly confront sin with other believers in a biblical way? Following Matthew 18 and Galatians 1, which we talked about three weeks ago. So go back and watch that. If you missed it, am I willing when I spot sin in someone's life in another believer's life, am I willing to confront that and not just let that slide in love with humility? Of course. And then here's where it gets really tough. Number four, when a friend is in the wrong, don't give them a pass. Am I willing to confront even when that person is a friend of mine, this is where it gets tough when they're a close friend and you know, there's something going on in their life. Is it easier to just ignore it? Yes. But is that the loving thing to do? No. We need to be willing to help each other back on the right path. And finally, when you choose one, take your time. This may not apply to everyone here, but I'm sure it will apply to some. Am I willing to be patient about becoming a leader in the church, or will I get upset when I don't get the position I've won? I've seen this work both ways. I've seen people not get a leadership position that they desperately wanted and absolutely go ballistic. And be so upset that they did not get the position, and what you have to conclude from that is, well, that demonstrated that that probably was not a position they should have. If if just not getting it resulted in that result, then that probably was a good choice. Uh, but I've seen other people not get a leadership position or be told to wait. And I've seen them go back and study and learn and grow and serve. And then they come back later and, and maybe they do get a leadership position. And it is it is such a wonderful thing because it was just the right time and the right fit for them. And it was, it was clearly God at work in that time. Don't try to rush elevating people into leadership positions. And if you are someone that pursues a leadership position in some way, be patient. Bible says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. And even if you get an answer of no or wait, sometimes take it with graciousness and be willing to be patient and trust God in that process. So a few things for us to do to reflect on, to make sure that we are responding to what Paul is teaching the church in the appropriate way. Here's the thing. If we get these things right, these five things right, then probably most of the time, we will have good leaders in the church who won't get distracted by all the things Satan throws at them from many different directions. They'll be focused on the right things. They'll move the church forward in the right way. We'll reach the community. We'll grow in our faith in Christ. We'll do all the things the Bible tells us to do in the church. Will it always be perfect or up to everyone's preferences? No, of course not, because we're different people. But we will be a part of building the kingdom of God, and it will thrive and flourish in some ways, as God works through us. That's exciting, isn't it? Here's the other thing. If we don't do these five things, if we don't do them well, then we will likely end up with leaders who fight against each other and and have lots of kind of bitterness among them and have sin issues that aren't addressed and don't confront sin when we see it. We'll have all sorts of problems in the church and it will maybe turn people away from the faith. But you know what? God's kingdom will still grow and flourish and thrive. We just won't be a part of it. So which side do you want to be on? I want to be a church that is a part of building God's kingdom. And what Paul says about church leaders is a big part of doing that well. So let's make sure we do that together. Let me pray for you as we close today. Father, this is a challenging thing to talk about because it does feel like inside baseball in the church. And it does feel like, um, you know, is is this super relevant to me? But I think it is. I think it's relevant to every single person sitting here watching online right now in a lot of different ways. Whether or not we're a church leader or pursuing church leadership, there are some principles here, some biblical principles that we need to follow. And so God, my prayer is that you would help us all to live this out this week. And let's make this really practical. God, there's probably some people sitting here who can think of someone that they know who is engaged in some sinful activity and maybe no one has talked to them about it no one has lovingly approached them and said, I, I think I see a problem here. God, would you put it on our hearts? Would you, would you make it a strong desire and give us the boldness and the courage to step up and do what you tell us to do, to confront sin where we see it? And Lord, maybe there are some things we've been involved in that are, that are inappropriate behaviors that we need to grow in. Maybe there are ways that you want to use us in the future as leaders in your church, but It's been held back because of something that's wrong in our lives, some some sin issue or just some growth that we need to have. I pray, God, that you would reveal those areas to us, that out of the people who are here in this room, the people that are watching online, the people who will watch this later this week, that there'd be some future leaders in the church who would hear these words from 1 Timothy and realize just how seriously you take church leaders and what they do and how they're treated And your church, help us to do this well so that we can focus on building your kingdom. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.